0: For more details, please check out our website, www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning. morning. It is good for us to be together again on the Lord's Day to hear from His Word and to encourage one another. Uh, We are back in the book of Acts this morning. Would you turn with me to chapter 4 and we'll pick up where we left off about three weeks ago uh, from verse 23. Hear God's word. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves... I ask you this morning, how should the church respond to opposition? Uh, This is a question that Christians have had to face for almost 2,000 years. Uh, Believers have had to contest with opposition to the Christian message, and in in various cases, till the point of death. What we have in the text in front of us this morning is a text of a recounting of the first church's response to opposition. And the text makes it clear that the Lord Jesus approved of this response. Now that is extremely important for us. Because the Lord Jesus approved of the way that they responded to opposition, then we have great courage in attempting to emulate them. Now, sometimes the church can act in ways that the Lord Jesus does not approve. But here we have a clear sign that the Lord approves of their message. And so, we have great encouragement that we can attempt to follow in their footsteps. And what is this response? How did they respond? What is, how, do, how do we summarize how they responded to opposition? Well, in this text, it's prayer. It's prayer. But it's much more than prayer. It is a mix of attitudes that are distinctly Christian. Attitudes fueled by faith and understanding of who God is. And as we walk through this text this morning, Luke wants us to notice a number of things. And so we'll spend our time noticing them. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Acts, so let me uh, catch you up. Perhaps if you're just joining us today, let me just catch you up. Uh, We saw in chapter 1, the resurrected Lord Jesus giving His church a mission and promising them the Holy Spirit that will come and enable them to carry out that mission. And then the Lord Jesus ascends and leaves and they wait for the promise. And the promise arrives uh, brilliantly and fascinatingly in chapter 2, when the Spirit of God descends upon them and they speak in other languages. Proclaiming the mysteries and wonders of God in different languages. Proclaiming now that the gospel has come to the whole world. And then they, 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 they preach the gospel and 3,000, there was an initial group of 120. And then 3,000 were saved when Peter stands up and proclaims the message. And then they continue on in their, in their life of preaching the gospel. And the Lord heals a lame man. We saw this in chapter 3. That the Lord was healed a lame man and there were more people saved in light of that wonderful sign. A sign that that, that says, this is what will happen in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be life and freedom from all kinds of disease. But the Sadducees did not like that that the apostles were preaching the resurrection. So they arrested Peter and John and brought them before the council the following day. And the last time we were in Acts in verses 1-22, to 22, we saw that trial where they were accused even of witchcraft. But Peter stood up and explained that no, this man was healed purely by the name of Jesus Christ. And then he proceeded to offer that same freedom, that same forgiveness of sins that he had been offering to the, offering to the nation of Israel. He offered that same forgiveness even to the rulers who killed the Lord Jesus. But what did we see? We saw the rulers rejecting that offer, and instead we saw them threaten them and plot to figure out how they can get to shut them up. And Peter and John famously responded by saying, "You should tell us whether or not we should listen to you or to God." And so we pick up now. We pick up the story here in verse 23 after they were released. Released. And Luke tells us here that when they were released. They went to their friends and reported what the council said to them. But in telling us this, Luke uses phraseology that stands out and makes it clear that he wants us to notice it. And that phraseology that stands out is that he says they went back to who? To their friends. The actual phrase here is that they went back to their own. Uh, this phrase in Greek that is, is a phrase that is used and translated in different ways. Most of them to refer to family and very, very close friends. Notice Luke does not tell us which group is here. You see, did you notice that? He just says he, they went back to their own, to their friends. Who, who is this? Who are these friends? Is it the twelve? Is it that initial group of hundred and twenty? Is it a specific set of friends that they have within the church? Uh, it's not. It doesn't seem. It's very likely that this is a smaller group, not the fuller group of the whole church, because in verse 32 he makes that decision. He makes that distinction that the full number is like this. So he's making a distinction between them. But he doesn't tell us the specific identities of these people. It is far more important to Luke to tell us that these people that they went to after they were released are people that they consider to be their own these are companions for their lives this is where they go for human companionship when they are pressed think of it this way these people This whole group, this group of 5,000 believers, they've all left mother and father and have been united together in a new humanity under the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in this group where they find true and lasting companionship, where they find a refuge. It is among these people that they huddle up together to get encouragement and to encourage one another, especially when one or more of them is being threatened because of following the Lord Jesus but not only that Luke tells us that they they went back to their friends and reported what the chiefs and the elders said to them this that is because this threat remember you we saw the threat earlier on and this threat was that they should not preach anymore in the name of Jesus Christ this threat does not only affect Peter and John it affects in the entire community while it was just Peter and John who were arrested and were put on trial it was really the whole church and the ministry of the whole church that was put on trial and so these threats are threats to the entire community hence they must come and report back to the church and what I want you to notice here Is that while they are united together by Christ in the new birth in a common mission, they are united together, they are going together in the same direction, they also become friends. They also belong to one another. Theirs is an affinity, a, a mutual care for each other that they can say that here are my people. There's something that goes beyond even mother and father and blood. Among these people are my people. I will consider these people to be my own. A few weeks ago, at, uh, at young adults, I can't remember how this came up. How this came up, but uh, we were talking about what would happen uh, in the case where one of the students in our church was kicked out. Uh, from their family members uh, because they've refused to, to uh, do ancestral worship. Now, what would happen if a student among us were to be kicked out and, uh, uh, and, and, throw, and, and just left aside by their family because they now are not participating in the family religion, they're now following the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said something uh, that the, the young adults did not like very much. I said I am praying that something like that would happen because if something like that would happen you will see the love poured out to that student from this church now I'm not okay I'm not actually praying that people get kicked out but the point I was trying to convey is that if something like that would happen you would see real and practical love coming from this church There will be so much love directed to that student. And I can say this with with confidence because I've seen by God's grace the love that God has given us for one another here. I've seen how we've carried each other. When one of us is low, we have all stood up to carry each other's burdens. I've seen by God's grace the love that is deep seated that God has given for us. And so if any student stands for Christ and now is left destitute, I'm confident that you heritage baptist will do your duty to that student there will be so much love to that student it will be like donald trump too much winning so much love you will complain that there's so much love because uh, the lord jesus christ has given us love for another there's an actual affinity we consider each other to be our own and and paul when when he when he talks about this about the colossians he's never met them but when he, when he thinks about this, the one of the things he praises them for, he says, I, I don't actually praise you, I praise God for the love that God has given you you guys for each other and for other Christians. Long may it continue in our church. The second thing that that Luke shows us is the single-mindedness of their corporate prayer. Look at verse 24. And when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, and then they begin to pray. Notice in verse 24 that it says they lifted up their voices together in the ESV. Now if you're reading the ESV and even the NIV, it says voices in the plural. But actually the word for voice that is there is singular. If you check it, it's actually a singular word. The King James has it correct. The King James reads, And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, and they continue on. The ESV and NIV went for voices in the plural there to try and make sense of this verse. But it is important for us to note that it's actually a singular voice. The reason this is important is because There is a lot of confusion regarding what corporate prayer should look like. What should prayer look like when we, as a church, have gathered together? We know God commands us to pray as a church, yeah. But what should that prayer look like when we're gathered together? We we know if you're at home, you pray. But when we get when we when we're gathered together here, what does it look like? Many people believe that if they have gone to church and have not had a personal, private prayer time to God, something is amiss. This is why in many places, the time of prayer on Sunday morning includes a loud noise of everyone praying at the same time. Is that right? You've seen this. Where everybody just prays and everybody prays their own prayer because the belief is we we must pray and so all of us must be praying so we can all pray uh, together at the same time without none of us hearing each other. Now let me make this very clear. That is an unbiblical practice. That is an unscriptural practice. Every time in the New Testament, when the church prays, we know what they prayed because they prayed in unison as one not as separate people praying for separate things but as one not that one person has their own cares and so they bring that to god another person has their own cares they bring that to god and it becomes a free-for-all but no we all pray and we bring all of our cares together as one you see here in this text we are being told exactly what they said in the prayer do you see this we are being told exactly what they said, including even the Old Testament quotation that they made when they were praying. Do you see how detailed this is? It would have been impossible to write down what was said if everyone was praying their own thing. Rather, the principle of corporate prayer in the new, in the scripture is this, that we pray in agreement. We pray with one voice practically what this means is that we're not all praying but generally someone prays on our behalf and we agree with an amen this is paul's point in first corinthians chapter 14 paul says he he, paul's when he says that uh, what's the point of praying if nobody else understands What's the point of, of you praying and the person next to you doesn't understand what you're saying? How can, the, if you're giving thanks to God, how can the person next to you say amen to your giving thanks to God if they can't understand you? See, the practice of the early Christian church is that someone prayed and the congregation either repeated the prayer phrase by phrase as the person was praying. Or that someone prayed, and at the end the congregation said, Amen. However, it can look practically, the idea is this. When we're gathered together as God's people, we must must ensure that our prayer is one, not many different disparate prayers. Following the Lord Jesus Christ is very personal. This is important. To follow the Lord Jesus Christ, is about you walking with him it is important that you personally privately seek him daily it is it is important that for you to honor him with your private life daily it is important for you to read his word for yourself and hear from him daily but following the lord jesus christ is also very corporate it's not one or the other it's both this is why We have to pray. When we are praying, we don't have to come here and think, oh, I didn't get a chance to pray, things are wrong. No. We've come together, and when someone prays, like Stuart just prayed for us, we we come together, he's praying on our behalf, and we give a hearty amen. This principle that Christianity is rather corporate in nature is one of the reasons why... Our church does specific things in particular ways, especially when it comes to the services. This is the reason why we don't have two services in the morning that that splits the membership. A service at 8 for some some members and then a service at 11 for the other members. We don't see that in the scripture. This is why we also won't have an evening youth service where we just expect the youth to come, but we don't expect them to be with us On Sunday morning no it's corporate we're together this is why we can't have communion in our homes we can't have communion in our growth groups because communion is something we do together you see there are elements of Christianity that require us to be together to do them we are after all as the Lord Jesus tells us one body so I I just I want to point that out to you so that you don't get confused if you leave here on Sunday morning and you haven't had uh, somebody giving you time to pray on your own, so they are praying. We know we, they are praying with one voice. But the question now is: Is what is it that they pray for? What is it that they, they they bring before the Lord? Well, let's examine this prayer together. Look with me at the prayer at verse in verse twenty-four. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea. And everything in them who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit and then they go on the first thing that I want you to note is that they acknowledge that God is the one who is truly in control did you see that think with me for a second how did the Lord Jesus tell his disciples to pray what is the prayer that the lord jesus gave his disciples to pray our father but i hope you know i don't know if you notice something here they don't they don't call him father at this particular point they're not approaching him as father they approach him as sovereign lord and they do that rightly so how do they approach him they approach him as the one who is in control of everything who is the one who made the heavens and the earth? They are thinking about Him, alright. You are our Father, but You are much more than that. You are the One who is sovereign over everything. Oh, I'm sorry, I just got stuck here. What is the great comfort to the saints when they are being threatened with by governmental powers? that are more powerful than they are. What is the great comfort? When you you, you, you read about, as we heard, we, we had a few weeks ago, of somebody telling us from open doors, telling us about what's going on in the nations. And you read about that and you think that there are some of our brothers and sisters who are being tossed to and fro by governmental powers with military and guns. What is the great comfort to the saints? The great comfort here is that our Father... Who has made a covenant with us who has adopted us is also the sovereign Lord of all existence meaning that even that persecution is under his hand when they say this you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them they're saying you are sovereign over the entire cosmos they are acknowledging his rule and control of every event that happens You see, dear saints, we talk about doctrine being important. And rightly so. And in this case, doctrine is very important. Listen. There can exist an unnecessary panic that is a sign of immaturity or faithlessness among God's people. There can exist an unnecessary panic that is a sign of immaturity or faithlessness among God's people. When we panic and are completely unsettled and just are buzzing this way and that because of the situation around us, as if God is not Lord even over that, we have betrayed our trust of Him. I did a bit of research. I looked through the Gospels this week. And counted five instances where the Lord Jesus rebuked his disciples and accused them of having little faith. And in all those situations, the disciples were unsettled or tempted to be unsettled because of the situation around them. See that the disciples were responding to the what they can see, what is happening. And they are unsettled. They are buzzing. They they are not trusting that their Lord is a sovereign Lord, even over the waves of the sea and the wind. In Matthew 6, verse 30, the Lord Jesus asks, asks it as a question. He says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will He not much more clothe you O you of little faith. Jesus' words are true even for us today. That we can trust the Lord for provision for our lives. With a ridiculously high fuel price right now, with load shedding that's hurting your income, with children being abducted in the news and crime stats being this high, You must know, dear saints, that there exists an anxiety that communicates that you do not believe that God is the one who's clothed the grass that you saw today. Even amidst all of these situations, if you look at them and you are completely, you you are unsettled, you are lost, you are communicating that the Lord is 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 not the one who clothed the grass. There is an unsettledness A fear that communicates to the principalities and powers that you do not actually believe that your Father is in control. The Lord Jesus requires us to to remember the Lord's sovereign rule over existence, especially when we are hard pressed Especially when it seems like the situation has no resolution. Especially when we feel like our own very livelihoods are under threat the lord jesus requires us to remember that he is the so our father our father in heaven the one who adopted us the one who sent the lord jesus to come and die for us is the sovereign lord of everything we must remember it we must think on it we must meditate on it it must be on our minds that the lord is in control and so that the disciples do that here and they do it appropriately and I must say this. Look, I, look, I, it, it, we all understand it. It's hard to keep perspective when situations are tough, right? It's hard to have your head. You do, it's hard to think clearly when situations are tough, especially with the with everything and, 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 every, and especially when when people are complaining around you and everything, and you just keep hearing more bad news, bad news. It's it's hard to keep perspective. But my encouragement to us this morning is that that the Lord Jesus told us that we are to love the Lord God, our Father in heaven, with everything, including our minds and our hearts. Meaning that there is no set of emotions that I'm allowed to have that are contrary to who God is. I'm not allowed to, to to feel a certain way if God requires me by His existence, by His love for me. Requires me to feel a different way. In every particular sphere, we, we, must, we must put ourselves under the control of God's word and of the truth that we know. We must not allow ourselves and our hearts and our minds to just be tossed this way and that by every wind of doctrine and every uh, news broadcast. Are you with me? The disciples are doing here exactly what they should. They remember that the Lord is sovereign. And in their remembrance of the absolute of the absoluteness of God's control over everything that's happening to them, they cry out to Him. They pray to Him. They bring their cry to Him. This is the testimony that we see throughout the Scripture. When, when the faithful are hard-pressed, they cry out to God. In Psalm 54, David does the same when he's surrounded by Saul. He says, you, he cries out to the Lord and says, you are the upholder of my life. Save me by your name. You take your fear, you take your anxiety, you take the situation that's at hand and you throw it, you cast it on his broad shoulders. What did Peter say to us? Cast your cares on him. Why? For he cares for you. The repeated, biblically sanctioned example of what we are to do when we are hard-pressed by persecution or anything else is to cry out to the Lord, acknowledging that He is in control of even this particular situation. The second thing following from this is that the events that have occurred, including this persecution, has already been foretold by God through David and is happening exactly in the way that God ordained it to. That's the second thing that they say look again with me here in verse 25 who through the mouth of our father david your servant said by the holy spirit why did the gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the lord and his anointed for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The church here, in verse 25, what we see is a quotation of Psalm chapter 2. And Psalm chapter 2 paints the picture of that God has installed his king, his anointed, and yet the nations are plotting against him. And so, what does the psalm say? The psalm says, God in heaven looks at the nations plotting against his Messiah, and he has a laugh. He just giggles, he laughs. And so, they look at this and they apply it and they say, Okay, this is that. What what was foretold by the Holy Spirit through the penmanship of David in Psalm 2 is exactly what's happened in front of us. And they really, you see, they do a lot lot of work to actually uh, apply it and interpret it to their particular situation. You see, they say here uh, that, you see, if you look at verse 25 uh, and verse 26, the quotation, there's four groups of people that are mentioned, Uh, if you look there. There's Jet why did the Gentiles rage and two peoples and then the kings and the rulers? There's four of them. And then the church, in its prayer here, applies those four people to four entities that have that had just killed the Lord Jesus Christ here. And I don't know if you see that. If you look at verse 27, the names. They say they name Herod, who represents the kings in the quotation, Pilate, who represents the rulers in the quotation, the Gentiles who represent the Gentiles in the the quotation. And finally, the peoples are here. And this this is a radical application. The peoples that are mentioned in Psalm 2 are applied to the peoples of Israel. Did you see that? The people of Israel. Now, the Israelites would not normally have done this. They would think, That the the peoples and the kings and the rulers who are plotting against the Messiah are all out there, all uncircumcised Gentiles. But here the church recognizes that no, they are the peoples who are now plotting, who are now raging against the Anointed One. In effect, they are understanding that the whole system that got the Lord Jesus killed was in fact under the Lord's control. They're saying, all of these rulers, in Herod, Pontius Pilate, the people of Israel, everyone who plotted against Christ was doing exactly what you had planned to happen. They are recognizing that the persecution that came first to the Messiah, and then by implication now to them as representative of the Messiah, is something that God is completely in control of. They are saying everything is happening as has been foretold and has worked in accordance with the plan. Now, think with me. Think with me for a second. Why are they saying this to God? We're almost halfway through the prayer. In fact, we're more than halfway through the prayer. And they're busy telling God what He already knows. For, For whose benefit are they recounting these pieces of information? It's their own. They're the ones who need to take comfort in these truths. So they pray God's word back to him, praying to God in acknowledgement of his will. Now, Here's a lesson for us, dear saints. Our prayers to the Lord must be informed by scripture. Our prayers must be informed by the grand plan that God has set into motion. We must figure out what God's revealed will is, and then we are to pray in accordance with that. The fact that they know that God has orchestrated everything that happened to Christ, and that God had said that the nations would rebel against Christ, has implications for what they need to pray for. The fact that they know this is something that was foretold, and so it's going to happen, so that's what's happened, that has implications for how they are to pray. For example, let me just bring this here. Because Psalm 2 exists, they can't pray that the opposition disappears. Are you with me? They can't say, Lord, we have no idea what's going on, these people are opposing us, just remove them all. No, they can't. Why? Because Psalm 2 exists. And the rest of the scriptures exist that make it clear that there will be opposition to the messiah so their prayer they have to pause okay we even though we might like to not have opposition because psalm 2 tells us that there will be opposition so then we need to pray a prayer that's not that the opposition is to disappear so it must be something else you see wrestling with the scripture to ensure that our prayer is in line with god's will are you with me Their request is is informed by the the Scripture and ours must be the same. We must be saturated in God's Word to understand God's will so that we do not ask for things that are opposed to God's will. I remember when I was in varsity and I was extremely angry with the Lord. I mean, I, I had prayed and prayed and prayed that I would get the gift of tongues. And so that I can pray in the Spirit. And He did not give it to me. And I was trying, I was fasting, I was doing everything, going to the prayer evenings at our church. And I did everything. And the Lord wasn't giving it to me. And instead, He was giving it to everybody around me, it seems. Even the people whose lives I knew to be promiscuous. Here I am living a righteous life, and all I want is just to be able to pray in the Spirit, in tongues, and the Lord is not giving to me. But if only I understood, if only I had read God's Word properly and understood in His Word that there is no such thing as tongues for prayer. If only I had read scripture and understood, I I would have saved myself all of that energy. I could have actually fasted for things that God is going to give me. I could have actually fasted for things that actually are useful, not things that God has never promised to me. Are you seeing we can expend so much energy, have so much confusion, have even a disheart- being disheartened in our hearts because we're busy praying for things that are clearly against the revealed will of God. Ensure that whatever you pray for is in accord with the revealed will of God so that you don't waste time. But there is another important note we must make here in these verses. We're told here about kings and rulers and, and the peoples making war, raging against the Messiah. How do we know that the kings of the earth are setting themselves up against God? So say you are in a country, how you are to know that your government now, or, your, or the peoples, in, in your, in the, or the rulers, the, the councillors, the mayors, how do you know that they're now actually doing what Psalm 2 is saying? that they are actually now raging against the Messiah. Well, in this text, the Church applies this specifically to the rulers that led to the Lord Jesus' death, and that is really the primary application uh, that, that Psalm 2 is pointing to. But this opposition to Christ is seen even after Christ has left. Even after Christ is no longer on earth, we still see the same opposition to Him. Here we see the the rulers of Israel opposing Christ by opposing his church. They forbid his people to speak of Christ. And throughout history, world leaders have done this. They have opposed the message of Christ. And in many cases, even around the world today, they are still doing this, opposing the gospel message and prohibiting it. What we see consistently in the scripture is that the world leaders set themselves up against the Messiah when they set themselves up against His rule, His reign over His people. In the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar and Darius set themselves up against the worship of Yahweh. And so the faithful in the book of Daniel opposed them. Saul of Tarsus, whom we will meet in a few chapters time in the book of Acts, was persecuting the church of Christ and Christ appeared to him violently, intimating to him that the persecution of of his church is persecution to him directly. In the book of Revelation, we see the beast that rises out of the sea making war specifically against the saints because they are the ones who are faithful to the Lord. So here's a rule, here's a rule. When you see a kingdom attacking God's people specifically because of their worship and faithfulness to God, that's when you know that Psalm 2 is happening. And that's when you know that you need to pray this particular prayer in the way that they prayed it. Because now you have uh, a kingdom or rulers or peoples around you who are opposing the the, the kingship of the Lord. On the one hand, this has nothing to do with political ideologies, economic laws, building codes, environmental laws, vaccines, speed limits or any number of different laws that people dispute over. Psalm 2 has nothing to do with any of those things. Or on the other hand, this has everything to do with the worship and faithfulness to God being challenged. And the saints here in our text aware that this is what's happening right now, aware that this applies to them, proceed to make a request to God. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Having properly sized up the situation using a biblical lens, they now pray the only thing they know that they are to pray for. Boldness to continue to be faithful. Boldness to continue to be faithful. Here they ask the Lord to look upon these threats and grant them boldness in light of them. You see, these threats... Are designed to make the disciples weak. These threats are designed to make the disciples afraid so that they slink back from their duty of preaching the true gospel in the form that it is. There, these threats are designed to create cowardice in the saints. And the saints here ask the Lord to look upon these, look upon the situation, and grant us the boldness that is required to stand in the face of it notice how they view themselves in verse 29 they view themselves themselves as the lord's servants literally as the lord's bond slaves they see that's how they view themselves here they're saying we are your so- we're your servants we ought to do what you have told us to do but here are some threats that are creating within us a fear To not do what we're supposed to do. So help us from on high with the boldness we need to stand and do what we are to do as your servants. You see, this idea that they are the Lord's servants has a lot of implications even for us. If you think about this, the gospel is not their message. Yeah? Didn't start with them. They don't have the authority to decide whether or not to preach it what on what not to include in it see these threats are specific they say don't speak using this name again don't speak using the name of jesus again it's almost as if they're saying you can speak about the jewish law you can come to the synagogue come to the temple speak about the jewish law speak about the wonders of of the messiah as the in as an idea but just don't speak About Christ and the Sadducees would add into that just don't speak about the resurrection but they know these saints because they are servants they know that they must proclaim the message as they have received it without any additions subtractions or multiplications there are a few lessons for us here dear church We haven't been given many messages. We haven't been given much to herald. We have not been given uh, a number of things that could help the world. It's not our lot. We've been given only one message. The word, the message that we have been given here is singular. As you see they say here, help us, grant us to speak your word. That is to say, grant us to speak your gospel. It's singular. And and that word, that gospel, has to do with the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, and the offer of free forgiveness to every single creature who would bow his knee to Christ. We must proclaim the word as it is. And what is that word? And perhaps you're here this morning and you're wondering, what is that word? What is is the church about? What is church about really is church just about trying to make community better uh, is church about perhaps uh, uh uh you know creating a social club for friends well, what what is church about well let me tell you dear friend christianity has been given the message that in christ jesus all of the filth of your sin can be forgiven all of the offense that you've made against god when you've raised your fist at Him, when you've broken His laws, when you've treated your your family members and your friends in an evil way, when you've lied and stolen and cheated, all of that sin that has been piling up against you since you were able to start sinning, all of that sin can be completely wiped clean if only you would come to the Messiah. Psalm 2 ends in a wonderful way. Psalm 2 ends and says this, that they're all raging and they're doing stupid things. Instead, what they could do is is serve Him. Instead, what they should do is rejoice in Him. He says, these rulers, stop doing this. What you should be doing is to kiss the Son so that His wrath does not come to you. You understand? That's the message. The message is that we can be forgiven, that we can have full life, that we can have a secure future in Him that is eternal. That we can know what humanity truly is to live in light of God and His law. Let me encourage you if you're here this morning and you're you, you're unclear about Christianity, I want to encourage you to, to, to just just think put aside Christianity as a concept for a moment. And and stand in your mind between you and God. How are you going to escape? You know what you did yesterday? You know what you thought two days ago? You know what's been in your heart this past week? How on earth do you think a righteous and holy God could look at you and say, Oh shame. what a nice one. No, you you ask for forgiveness, it's fine. I'm going to... The only way that that can happen, let me submit to you, that the only way that that could happen is if the Lord Jesus Christ dies on a cross, and your sins are accounted for in His death. Come to Him, place your faith in Him, and He doesn't. You don't need to do a lot of things. You just need to look on Him, kiss the Son. It says, kiss Him. Come to Him to His feet and say, I don't have anything to offer You except my sins. Take them away. And I can guarantee you. Knowing that free, that free, that forgiveness myself, I can tell you now that if you come to Him that way, He will never turn you away. That is the message we have been given. That is the message that men can be forgiven of their sins um, in the Lord Jesus Christ and can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is, fellowship, true and lasting fellowship with God. But, Also, in our proclamation of the gospel, we must be careful to not mix it with other messages. We must be careful to not add or subtract anything that would make it easier in our respective cultures or even in our respective countries to not incite opposition. When it comes to the gospel, dear Heritage Baptist, we must just have at it. Okay? When it comes to the gospel, have at it preach it as it is with humility but preach it as it is and let come what may let come what may don't try and think of okay now um, you know you're you're with your someone and and they, they really like ancestralism and you you have to try and say things that that no have at it your trust must be in jesus christ in jesus christ alone or you will have no part in him yeah have at it, Heritage Baptist. When, you, when, you, when, you, when you're out there in the square preaching the gospel, when you're with your friends, have at it as it is, untouched, and then set it as a ball, and then let the explosion happen. I'm not saying be jerks, okay? not saying don't have the gentleness that Peter tells us to have in 1 Peter. But what I'm saying is, as it relates to the content of the message, it needs to be thrown as a grenade as it is. And then we can pray and trust that the Lord will make that grenade produce fruit. Okay, this is where the analogy breaks down. Now, if you think about that, what I just said, that our responsibility as it relates to the gospel, you can see that it is obvious we need help. Yeah? We need God's help. There is opposition, and we must plead with God to give us boldness to continue to preach this gospel in the way He desires. Now, first we must recognize that for us living in our country, living here in Johannesburg, by God's grace, generally we do not face anything near the order of magnitude that these, these believers are facing. So we must thank God for the freedoms that we have to proclaim the gospel as it is, Um, as it is, it's not a common thing throughout church history and certainly in many countries today, it's not a common thing to be able to proclaim the message without fear of opposition. But we must also acknowledge that there is some level of opposition that requires boldness on our behalf. You see, dear saints, it doesn't take much boldness for me to preach the gospel to you this morning because, well you know what you came for, right? You came to me, I didn't come to you. You came to church, so you knew that church was gonna preach the gospel. So there's a, I mean, you can say it requires boldness, but not that much. But when when your family is threatening to disown you, yeah, when, when your high IQ colleagues shun you because of your archaic belief, With a a perfect stranger on the bus or in the taxi. See, those situations require boldness. Require an overcoming of of fear to preach without, without worry of what's going to come at me. And we must ask for it. We must ask the Holy Spirit, just like these believers did. We must ask the Holy Spirit to give us this boldness. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4 says that let the one who serves serve with the strength that God supplies. Let the one who serves serve with the strength that they've conjured up? No. That they've worked at? No. Serve with the strength that is natural to them in their personality? No. Serve with the strength that God supplies perhaps the reason you have not shared the gospel with that friend or that family member is because you are expecting yourself to be able to produce the boldness required to proclaim the gospel you're busy trying to conjure it up but you mustn't assume that you must follow the example of these saints go to god and ask him to grant you the boldness required really depend on him depend on him like like a, like a, like a little chick you know those those chicks in the in the in the nest of the bird when they just open their mouths like this expecting the mother bird to come and drop food in their mouths depend on him that way for the boldness that you require to preach the gospel even the great even the great apostle paul said this pray for me that I might proclaim the gospel with boldness as I should. Can you imagine anybody more bold and more in your face than the Apostle Paul? And even he, when he was in chains, told the church at Ephesus, pray for me, I'm in chains. Pray for me that I might have the boldness I need to proclaim the gospel as I should. Not to belittle you, but when it comes to the Apostle Paul, I mean, who are you? Right? The Apostle Paul, if the Apostle Paul needed boldness, how much more do you think you need? They ask for boldness and they also know that and also note that they that they know that if God grants them boldness, He will continue to perform the signs am, among them. Not only do they ask for boldness, but they are aware that as if God gives them this this boldness, then what will happen is that he will perform these signs and wonders among them as he has been performing them so far. In effect, they are asking that the Lord would help them continue their work with boldness because they know that the Lord will continue his work producing the signs. Um, Not that they are... Um, not that they are necessarily asking God to do the signs. You see, there's, the way this phrase works, you see here in verse 30, it says, while you stretch out your hand. So they're not asking the Lord to stretch out their hand. They know that as long as they preach the gospel, He will stretch out their hand. But they just want Him to enable them to do their part, to enable them to do what they're supposed to do. So the idea here is this, if we were to try to apply to ourselves, the idea is this, we would pray that we would do our duty, and that God would do His. We, as the ones who have been entrusted with the message, are going to go forward with it. And we pray that you give us the boldness to go forward with it. And then we also expect Him and plead with Him to produce fruit from our land. And at the end, in verse 31, the Lord shakes the room that they're in as a sign of His approval to strengthen them and encourage them for the work. And you see there in verse 31, the Holy Spirit comes and fills them for this particular task with boldness. Don't confuse this coming of the Spirit here with the coming that happened in Acts 2. This is not a coming of the Holy Spirit coming down. This is actually just a filling, an enablement to do a particular task. The Holy Spirit is now filling them. He's enabled them with boldness. And so we see that the Lord approves of their prayer, approves of their attitude, and He seals it with a sign, and He gives them the boldness that they need. And you see what happens at the end. They continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. I see no reason why our prayer for boldness, to proclaim Christ, would not be answered. I see no biblical reason. If I were to wrestle with the scriptures, why would God not give us boldness so that we can go forth and preach Christ in our different spheres as we are as a church? There is simply no reason that comes up. Which means that if we pray for boldness, if we continue to pray for it and ask the Lord to give us boldness, we should expect to see that answer. Dear church, let me encourage you to pray for boldness for us as a church. And for you individually. Pray for boldness for our members as they go. To be there with their respective families in different places. That they would have the boldness they'd need. To preach the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we'd, and then, as you pray that. Expect to receive a positive answer. Let's pray. Yes Lord. Uh, you have given us a great mission a great commission, a uh, wonderful news to give to the world. And Lord, we confess ourselves fickle at times, weak at times, worrisome at times, in the different situations when we have an opportunity to proclaim that message. And so we ask, Lord, that our witness would be effective, that we as Heritage Baptist Church would be a faithful church to the mission, to proclaim the message of God uh, and His gospel, to proclaim about the Lord Jesus Christ, His death, resurrection, and ascension, that we would be emboldened to do it with a supernatural boldness, a boldness that comes from You, a boldness where we are surprised, wow, we were able to do that, because You have enabled us. We pray, Lord, that You would help us in this way. Help each one to deal with each situation in a manner that pleases You and honors Your great gospel. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen.